welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you can do all things. And Lord, as we just think about the the kinds of needs that are here in this room, Lord, it is beyond the ability for any mere human to minister to these needs, Lord. As you know, and you know even the, the deepest needs, ones that have been unspoken that are in this room, Lord, there are people who need physical healing. There are people who need emotional healing, spiritual healing. There are those who are just battling their own sin in the flesh. There are those who are in very difficult family situations. Lord, there are so many needs in this room. There's career disappointments. There's um, all sorts of chronic pain and anxiety and depression and all the things that, that, that humans wrestle with, Lord. You know them and you care. And so we pray, Lord, that even as we open this passage talking about Melchizedek, that you would minister to all the various needs in this room, Lord. We pray that you would speak to each person that's here, whether they already know you or or they've not come to know you yet. We just pray, Lord, that you yourself would speak to their hearts. Lord, we don't need to hear the thoughts of a man. We don't need to hear... um, you know, the eloquence of a human. We need to hear from you. And so as we open your very words and you speak through Hebrews 7, we pray that your spirit would also speak through your word down deep into our hearts, that it would be something more than just a normal Sunday. It would be that we had clearly been spoken to by you, through your word, by your spirit, and that we'd respond. Would we just pray for our full heart's response, Lord. It's so easy for us to be so, so dull to you and hardened and hopeless and just push you at arm's length, Lord. And yet, as you draw near, we pray, Lord, our hearts would be open to you. Make our hearts good soil for the gospel, Lord. We, we pray for that Ezekiel 36 promise that you would cleanse us from all idols. 
that you would give us new hearts that are not stony but alive and, and beat for you, and that you'd fill us with your spirit and cause us to walk in all your ways. Lord, this is something you can do. This is something we've seen you do every single week, and so we look forward to it again. We love you. We pray that you'd help us to love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. This is the Melchizedek part. And there's been a few spots where he brought up Melchizedek, and we kind of backed away, and then we went into it, we backed away. But this is where the Melchizedek part starts. And um, you guys have been waiting for this. How many of you guys have been waiting for this? Have you guys been like, man, you tease us with that Melchizedek thing over and over again? You know, you're, you're like, I'm going to go somewhere else where they talk about him more. Now, remember the original context of this passage. So these are Jewish Christians. They had come to see that Jesus really is their long-awaited Messiah. They started to follow him, but then persecution heated up, and then they started to, to feel like maybe they should just go back to Judaism. Turned out in their context where they lived, it would have been easier to go back to Judaism, and so there's a temptation to do that. And what's going on in this passage is that uh, the writer of Hebrews wants to show them that Jesus is better than anything they go back to. And specifically in this part, Jesus is better than the priest they would go back to. Because at that time, the Jews had priests. They were Levitical priests. They were descendants of Levi. And what he wants to show in this section is, man, you really don't want to go back to those priests. Jesus is a better priest. And he shows that by showing Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. There's only one command in this passage. Can you guys see it? Verses 1 through 10. What's the one command in this passage? You guys see it? I'll wait patiently. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting command. It's in verse 4. See how great this man was. And the man is Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see how great Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was a great man. But our account of him in Genesis 14 is actually a little strange. Melchizedek is actually one of the strangest men in the Bible. So strange that there were a lot of conspiracy theories that kind of developed around him. You can look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there were all kinds of like stories about who he was, because there's just a tantalizingly small amount of information. And us humans, when we see something like that, we go like, what else could this be? And we start making up stories and, and stuff like that, and people did that. Uh, and Melchizedek's strangeness is actually his greatness. His greatness is found in his strangeness. It's strange how Melchizedek, he just came out of nowhere. You guys remember Genesis 14 where he appears? So Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur. He's an idol worshiper. He calls him out of Ur to follow him, to lead him to a land that he's going to give him. He's going to make him a great nation. And uh, for some reason, Abraham brings along his uh, knucklehead nephew Lot, who turns out to be just a bunch of trouble. But he brings him along. God blesses both of them. As they kind of grow in uh, Genesis 13, it says that their flocks were so great they couldn't live together anymore. And so they kind of separate for a time. And Abraham, being a peacemaker, says, you know what, Lot, you pick which part you want, I'll go to the other. And so Lot looks up and he sees the Jordan Valley and it's so beautiful. And Genesis says it was like, the, it was like Eden, it was like the Garden of God. And uh, it looked kind of like Menifee did, you know, like three months ago after all that rain. It was like that, it was beautiful. And so Lot looks at that, and then he looks over here, and it looks like, like Menifee looks right now, okay? It's just a bunch of tumbleweeds and stuff. And that guy goes, I'll take the good stuff. And so he leaves his uncle Abraham to the tumbleweeds, <laughs> and he goes out. And the, the part that Lot chose, though, problem with it was, is that that place had the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens is Lot gradually inches closer and closer to the city of Sodom. Pretty soon he's living in it. He becomes so enmeshed in the city of Sodom that when the kings of the east come to conquer Sodom, 
Um, they actually haul away Lot as a prisoner. And so in Genesis 14, Abraham hears about his nephew Lot, and he's been captured. And kind of like a really, really old Hebrew Clint Eastwood, he gathers his posse together of 318 men. They saddle up, and they head out after these kings of the east to rescue Lot. And they end up uh, north of Damascus. They attack by night. They slaughter the kings, it says. They take Lot and his possessions, and they bring him home. In Genesis 14, 18, as Abraham's returning, he meets this mysterious man, Melchizedek. Take a look at, if you are able to, Genesis 14, 18 says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek kind of, and that, that's it, by the way. He, he comes out of nowhere, and then he just kind of disappears. He vanishes just as suddenly as he came. He's a, a strange figure. Melchizedek is also strange in the fact that he was both priest and king. If you go over to our passage in Hebrews 7, verse 1, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So there's a strange thing here. The strange thing is that Melchizedek is both king and priest. That was unusual. Later on in the Mosaic law, it was actually forbidden for any one man to be both king and priest. Kind of a balance of powers thing, right? And um, the kings would come from Judah. The priests would come from the line of Levi. And you guys remember, like King Saul, he actually lost his reign over this, right? He tried to be a priest. He tried to offer a sacrifice and lost his reign. Melchizedek was a strange priest, too. I think if you think back to this time, this is in Canaan, this is during the time of Abraham, this is before Israel and all that, the Canaanites were not known for their pure religion, right? They were known for their kind of gross uh, paganism. And this guy is a Canaanite priest, just kind of floating around out there, that is totally legit. He's totally legitimately following the one true God. If you look at verse 1, it says Melchizedek, was a priest of the Most High God. And he must have been a legit, you know, like real deal, solid, theologically sound priest because Abraham's tithing to him. He's receiving blessing from him. And so you've got Abraham and his covenant people, and then you've got this mysterious Canaanite priest out there who really does worship the one true God. And he's out there apart from them. So he's a strange priest. He's also a strange king. He's a strange king because he was a good one, Right? It says he was a, a king of righteousness and king of peace. And uh, sadly, that's not common, right? It wasn't common throughout all of human history, not common in the Bible. Um, certainly not common in that time. We see what the other Canaanite kings are like, right? King of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, kings of the east who kidnapped Lot. And so you have this land where there's all these terrible rulers and terrible kings, and into all that evil and chaos comes Melchizedek. And he's a king of righteousness and king of peace. And it's really cool the kind of like strength he projects, this king of righteousness and king of peace. He doesn't go off to war, right? He's not interested in squabbling over land. His kingdom's secure. He doesn't worry. He doesn't like go after more land, nothing like that. His kingdom is unthreatened. He's secure and satisfied. And so Melchizedek is, is king over a city. The city's called Salem. Later that'd be called Jerusalem. It means uh, city of peace. And so there's a strangeness to Melchizedek. He's strange as a priest in that context, that he's so solid and 
He's following the one true God, and he's, he's strange as a king, that he's just this righteous man who's a king of peace and righteousness. And that's where his greatness is, guys, because those are two roles we need. Priests are given to set us right with God. We need that. And kings are given to set the world right for us. A king that rules well is supposed to make the world good for us, right? It's supposed to set things right. And so what you have here in Melchizedek is you have a man who is both a priest for his people to set them right with God, and he was a king to set the world right for them. I just think, like, how blessed were these people that lived in Salem? You know, a lot of people are like, you know, if there was a time machine, you know, where would you go back to? I wouldn't go back to anywhere, okay, because I like modern dentistry and antibiotics and all those kinds of air conditioning, for example. One of the places you definitely wouldn't go back to is you would not go back to Canaan in around 2000 BC. Total nightmare, right? Total nightmare to live there. There's like human sacrifice. There's all kinds of heinous things, right? How amazing would it be to live in Salem, though? You got Melchizedek. He's a priest to the one true God. And he's a king of righteousness and peace. And, of course, this reminds us that Jesus is that true priest king the true priest king we can live under. And by the way, guys, the fact that Jesus is a priest and a king uh, makes Christianity kind of unique in world religions. When you think about most religions, they might offer you a priest. That priest isn't a king. A priest isn't somebody that's going to set things right for you. In Christianity, you get a king who is a priest. And it also kind of confronts the way we think about religion, too. I was thinking about this, like, if Jesus was only a priest, that would fit really well with the way our culture thinks about religion, because our culture thinks of religion as a private thing. It's something for your own private soul to privately commune with God. Like, your religion has nothing to do with other people. It has nothing to do with, you know, the whole world. It's something personal between you and God. And our culture basically tells us, as long as you keep it that way, we'll all get along, right? As long as you keep your religion personal, just you and God, we'll all get along. It's something personal. It's something private. And maybe that would work if Jesus was just a priest, but he's not. He's a priest and a king. Jesus is the rightful king over the whole world, over every single human life. So there's nothing private about Christianity. And because Jesus is a priest and he's a king, he can do exactly what we need. He sets us right with God, and he will set the world right for us. He's a priest with a kingdom. You think like, okay, well, let's think about that kingdom. Let's, what will that kingdom be like? When Jesus brings his kingdom fully, what will it be like? And we can see that in his name, right? He's king of righteousness, king of peace. He's going to make this world righteous and peaceful. Isn't that the two things we ache for? Think about the world the way it is right now. I mean, think about even just your immediate context, maybe your own family life, maybe your own neighborhood. Think out to our city, think out to our state, think out to the world. And like, what are the two things our world desperately needs? And we desperately need righteousness, don't we? Want to live in a world of righteousness? We desperately need righteousness. And we desperately need peace. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus the King is going to bring both. And uh, just like those people of Salem are blessed by that, having that ruler, Jesus is going to rule the whole world in that way when he returns. Jesus' kingdom is going to rule over the whole world. And I was thinking about uh, Melchizedek's kingdom. Melchizedek's kingdom was actually small. He's called a king, but he's really like maybe a mayor. He's a king over a city, so, I mean, I don't want to downgrade his title or anything, but it is a city, right? It's Salem. Jesus' kingdom started off small, too, didn't it? And actually in the same place, which is amazing. Jesus' kingdom started off small in Jerusalem, but it's filling the whole world. Jesus' kingdom 
like Melchizedek's, advances not through war but through peace. You know, you see these, these Canaanite kings and they're out there conquering each other and, and Jesus comes and he's a king that, that conquers through peace, not by slaughtering his enemies, but by being slaughtered for his enemies on the cross for their sin, for our sin. He establishes his kingdom not through war, but through making peace between us and God. So he's become a king of peace. And it's amazing the way that his, his kingdom is inaugurated, right? So Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated not by slaughtering a bunch of people and taking a throne, but that he would come and he would ascend a cross and take a crown of thorns. That's the beginning of his kingdom. And the Gospel of John talks a lot about the cross as being lifted up, being glorified. And, and taking his kingly role. He takes it on the cross, and then he rose, and he ascended, and then he, he took the throne in heaven. He's ruling the world. His kingdom is now radiating out over the whole world, right? As the gospel goes forth, it's invasive, and people in the kingdom of darkness come into Christ's kingdom by believing the gospel. More and more people receiving forgiveness, receiving him as their priest and king, until the whole world will be filled with righteousness. This is an amazing thing. Think about the original readers. Think about how they were tempted to leave Jesus, their priest, for these Levitical priests. The contrast can't be more stark. It's like, you don't want to leave this Jesus. He's a priest with a kingdom. He makes you right with God, and he's going to set the world right. And for us, guys, why would we ever leave him? He's got everything we need. So Melchizedek's strangeness is seen that he's a priest king. It's also seen in the fact that he seems to be eternal, his life seemed to not have a beginning or end. Look at verse 3. Speaking of Melchizedek, he says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. Now, I don't think that the author of Hebrews is saying that Melchizedek really was an eternal being. What he's saying is that in the book of Genesis, where there's such a fascination with genealogies, you know, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and and, and then he died. You know, there's a genealogy where he came from, his parents and everything, and then it says he died. And the interesting thing about Melchizedek is he doesn't say that. He doesn't get where he came from. Super important person, no genealogy. It's weird, right? Super important person, it doesn't talk about the end of his life. The author of Hebrews is saying that Genesis is making him look as if he's eternal. Make him look as if he had no beginning or end. Make him look as if, like, he could just show up at the neighborhood bar mitzvah one day. You know, that he never died. People are like, who's that? That's Mel. He shows up every once in a while. You know, as if he's this eternal being that just keeps on coming into, coming into places. Some people think that Melchizedek was actually an appearance of Christ, a Christophany. I don't think that's what's going on because verse 3 says that he was made to resemble the Son of God. Not that he was the son of God appearing, not that he was some sort of eternal being, but Melchizedek was a regular man. But the amazing thing about Melchizedek's life is that God so crafted the life of this man that he made this amazing picture of what Christ would be like. And even in the way that Genesis talks about it, makes it look as if he's eternal, as if his priesthood goes on forever. And if that were true, if Melchizedek was had a priesthood that went on forever, obviously his priesthood would be better. It's better to have a priest that doesn't die. It's better to have a priest that you can count on forever. And in Jesus, guys, we have a priest who really is eternal. You know, if Jesus is your priest, as long as he lives, he will satisfy your sin problem. It says in verse 3 that he really did continue as a priest forever. 
You'll never have to look for another solution for your sin. I think some of you guys probably need to hear that. Some of you guys may have come here with fresh sin, right? Maybe extremely fresh, maybe like on the way here. You know, maybe yesterday, maybe just in the last few days, and you have fresh guilt, and you're carrying this thing around, right? And what you need to hear this morning is that you can give it to Jesus. He's still on duty. His priesthood goes on forever, right? His priesthood goes on forever. His blood still cleanses. He's an eternal priest. Because some of you guys feel like, yeah, I, I had that priest. You know, he took care of my sin before I came to him. You know, I came to him, I got my sin forgiven, and, you know, in those early days, I had some sin, and God took care of that, but, but his role stopped for that now, and now I just need to live for him. I just need to follow him. I just need to be faithful, which is true, by the way, but you've kind of neglected him as a priest. You've kind of started carrying around this sin and this guilt and not giving it to him, and it says here that he continues on as a priest forever. He's here this morning for this. That's why we do the confession of sin in the beginning of service is for us who have come with burden like that, that we could just drop that there, you know? That we don't have to carry it through the whole service, you know? That we can, we can confess our sin and, and feel him to have removed our guilt and our shame. And so he's an eternal priest. Melchizedek's also strange, though, in the fact that he's shown to be better than Abraham. Now, this is really odd. This is, it's odd that this guy, who we know almost nothing about, would be greater than Abraham. Right? Abraham, father of the nation, the one who's the, the father of Israel. And who could be greater than him? And yet this guy comes out of nowhere, and he's clearly superior to Abraham. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoil. What's he saying here? He's saying, you know, Abraham returns from this fight with the kings. He's got these spoils, which, you know, he earned in war. And then this guy kind of meets him on the way. And Abraham knows, like, I owe this guy a tenth of this. Not well. Abraham owes this guy a tenth of this. Why? Abraham must be in some way inferior to Melchizedek. Melchizedek must be in some way superior to Abraham. And the reason why this is important to the Jewish readers, and there's a lot of details here about tithing and things like that, the reason this is important to the Jewish readers is that they are tempted to return to some Levitical priests, Jesus is the priest they should stay with, and Jesus is from the line of Melchizedek. He's from the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so what the author wants to show is, if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, then Melchizedek must also be superior to Abraham's descendants, the Levites. And if uh, Melchizedek's superior to the Levites in their priesthood, then Melchizedek has a superior priesthood. And if so, Jesus, being a Melchizedekian priest, is better than the Levitical priest. Do you need me to do that again? I had like an equation in mind and a slide. It kind of had like Melchizedek and then like a greater than sign. And Should I have done that? I probably should have done that. Okay, let me do it one more time. Because this is important to them. This may not be important to you, okay? But this was important to them. These are, these are Jewish Christians, and they're, they need to see that Jesus is the better priest. He's the priest to go to. He's the one that's going to make me right with God. And so what this passage is doing is it's showing, okay, Melchizedek's better than Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek's better than the Levites who descended from Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levi's priesthood, right? Therefore, Jesus, because he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, is better than the Levitical priests. That's what he's trying to show here. And um, we also see Melchizedek's superiority here in that he blesses Abraham. Look at verse 6. But this man who does not have descent 
from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Okay, so this is two ways you see that Melchizedek's better than Abraham. One is is that Abraham pays tithes to him. And the second is, is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And this is particularly surprising because just a couple chapters before, God told Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. He told Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, that he would be a blessing to the whole Gentile world, which he is through Christ. But what's interesting here is you've got this priest who's Gentile, who's not from Abraham's line, who comes out of nowhere, and he's the one that blesses Abraham, not the other way around. And he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So what do we see from this passage? Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And this is kind of shocking if you're a student of the Old Testament. Melchizedek is more important than Abraham. Melchizedek is actually the most important person in the Old Testament. If a priest were ever to arise from the order of Melchizedek, that priest would be more important than any priest descended from anyone, including Abraham. Jesus is that priest. Jesus is the priest from the order of Melchizedek, the one who's greater than Abraham. Jesus is the one who truly is the most important person in the Old Testament, even though you don't see his name, right? Melchizedek is a, is a stand-in for Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And, and if you go back to that story and you just think about, like, Melchizedek's life, and you think, in all these little details of Melchizedek's life, he points so perfectly to Jesus. It just shows us that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the reason why Melchizedek's name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Jesus is the reason his name was given, Melchizedek. Jesus is the reason Melchizedek just happened to be the king of a place called Salem. Jesus is the reason why Melchizedek was a true priest in a pagan land. Jesus is the reason that Melchizedek just so happened to show up that day to take tithes from Abraham and to bless him. Jesus is the reason Melchizedek just so happened to be walking up to Abraham with bread and wine. It's a little overscripted, isn't it? As you think about it, you think like, this just fits too well, doesn't it? When you read about Melchizedek, you think like, how did this get put here? You know, because it certainly wasn't put in after Jesus' life, right? Genesis was written way before, but for some reason, Melchizedek's life is perfectly scripted. And not just the writing of Genesis, but Melchizedek's actual life was perfectly scripted to show Jesus. And the whole Testament's like that, guys. The whole Old Testament is really about Jesus. Not just the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Actually, all of human history is about Jesus. Actually, I can make this more personal. Your existence, whether you are a Christian yet or not, is really about Jesus. Do you realize that? Your whole existence whether you believe in Jesus yet or not, is really about Jesus. Colossians says all things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him. You were made by and for Jesus. You exist for him. And I'm not just saying, like, if you're a Christian, you exist for him. Every single human soul was created to know God. You were created for that. And so here you are this morning, and you're in church, and maybe you don't normally come to church, somebody invited you or something like that, and it might be a little bit disorienting and shocking to hear something like that, right? That your whole life 
is to know Jesus. Like you were created with plugins in your soul for joy in Jesus. That's what you were made for. You were made for him. You know, just like Melchizedek, every little part of his life just happens to point to Jesus. God has made it so every part of your life has been crafted so that you would see the goodness and the glory of God. And if you're honest, you've seen it. You know, um, I know a lot of us before we came to Christ, we'd say like, no, no, I don't believe. I don't, I, I don't believe there's a God or we'd have all these different things we say. But if we're honest, we've seen him. Every human being has seen his glory. We see that in Romans 1. It talks about that everything in the world displays the goodness and glory of God. And you've seen it. You've seen him. You've seen that he's good. You've seen that he's good in all that he's made. You've seen that he's good in his kindness to you. You wonder, like, where does all this joy come from? You know, not that life is all joy, but life has substantial joy in it. Where does that come from? You know, it comes from him. You've seen God in the love of his people, probably. You probably know people that follow Jesus, that you've received love from them. That's him displaying himself to you as well. Today, God's calling you to receive the one for whom you were made, the one you were made to enjoy. Augustine talked about this. He said that we're, our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. And if this morning, if you're not one who's following Christ, if you're not one who really knows him yet, and you have that kind of restlessness, and you just wonder why like, life is difficult and why, why you can never find full joy and peace and meaning in this world, it's because you were made for him. You're made with plugins on your soul, taste buds on your soul for God. And so the invitation this morning that God's making, not me, he's making, is he's saying, come home to the one that you've been created for, right? Come home to him. Enjoy him. He's a priest, and he, he wants to set you right with God, and he's already done everything needed to do that. And he's a king who wants to set the whole world right for you. And his kingdom, it's so great, his kingdom will start in you. So you'll start with forgiving you, you trust in him, he forgives you, and then you go like, oh man, I don't know how I could ever live like Christians that I know. Uh, maybe you need to get to know him more and you wouldn't be as impressed. But I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to live for God. He's a king, which is good news, super good news. Do you guys need a king? You guys need to come, somebody to come into your life and just like put it all in order? You need somebody to like, Take your emotions and take your heart and take the chaos that's going on in here and rule it? I need that. It's such good news. Sometimes people present the gospel of it's like, you know, Jesus, he died for your sins. You trust him. You can be right with God, but you're going to have to change your life. As if life change is bad news. Like almost everyone out there wants their life changed. And we're like, you'd have to change your life. You better think about it, you know? But what it really is, is you're receiving a priest and a king, and he starts and he rules in you. He starts ruling your emotions. He starts ruling your thoughts. He starts ruling your life. He starts setting your life in order. And I just say, take him as your priest and king. And you guys who know him, like, go out there and just share the fact that he's a priest and he's a king, and it's such good news, guys. Such good news. The original readers, they were tempted because of the pain of their lives to leave Jesus for mere shadows. You know, if I leave Jesus and I go back to the Levitical priest, then, you know, life's going to be easier because I won't have to deal with all this persecution. Like, holding fast to Jesus meant more pain in their lives. And that might be true for you guys as well, that holding to Christ might be more pain for you. You know, some of you guys are super embattled. I know it. You know, holding fast to Jesus looks like staying in a tough marriage or fighting your sin or remaining faithful in singleness or 
you know, struggling with chronic pain or illness or, you know, reconciling with somebody in your life. What Jesus calls picking up your cross and following him. And all I can say from the book of Hebrews is, guys, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. You don't want to leave him for anything. And um, he's better and he's going to be enough. He doesn't promise to take away our pain necessarily, but he does promise his presence and his power in our lives. And we have centuries of saints that would tell you he's enough. He can do it. He can be there for you. He can hold you up. He's more than enough. And so what do we have here? Well, just like Melchizedek came to Abraham 4,000 years ago, Jesus comes to you this morning, and he meets you. And you might feel like Abraham, that you just came off a war. (laughs) You know? You might feel pretty beat up. You're in the midst of battles and wandering, and you've just come in from war. You might feel a lot less victorious than Abraham, though. And like Melchizedek greeted Abraham with bread and wine, Jesus greets you this morning with the bread and the cup. He greets you this morning with the Lord's Supper. He greets you in a way because he wants to refresh and strengthen you. He wants to refresh and strengthen you with his real presence in the Lord's Supper. Guys, Jesus so obviously wants to bless you. He wants to be your priest, make you right with God. He wants to be your king, set the world right for you. If you want him, it's super simple. You just trust in him. You just take hold of him. You could even do it with the elements. You could, you could take the bread and the cup in your hand as a way of taking him. He'll set you right with God, and he'll set your world right. What could be better than Jesus, guys? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mysterious life of Melchizedek. And uh, Lord, we thank you that there's, there's more. There's more to learn, and there's more things in this text to dig into. And uh, we just thank you for placing this, this mysterious man in the Old Testament to show us how good your son Jesus is. I just pray for everyone that's here, even as we take the Lord's Supper and even as we continue to worship you, Lord, we just pray that you would um, settle our hearts in Jesus. Cause us to really trust in him as our priest who's taken away all our sin. And Lord, also help us to trust him as our king. Help us to hand over every part of our lives to him and do as he says as our king. Lord, help us to just look forward to his rule and his reign. That no matter how difficult things get in this world, we know that your son Jesus is king and that he's winning and that his kingdom is growing and that his kingdom will take up the whole world and make all things new. Thank you for that hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.